This is 100 Years of Cox. You are listening to a podcast by Francis Thompson. I'm telling the story of 10 siblings from the Machel Cox family through the letters they wrote to each other. They were born in England between 1868 and 1884. Seven of them lived in England and three lived abroad in the colonies. These siblings are my family. Sibling number two, Edmund, is my great-grandfather. I hadn't realised that my three episodes on cycling in 1907 had accidentally coincided with the Tour de France, which is on at the moment. I don't know about you, but I'm enjoying watching it. The cycling is fabulous. The numerous accidents are very watchable, but the scenery is just stunning. Here in Brisbane, in Australia, our state borders are closed and we can't travel outside Queensland, let alone go to Europe. I'm sure I'm not the only one enjoying some armchair foreign travel. The 1907 bicycling tour has now finished and the siblings have all returned to their respective homes. There is now a lot of discussion in the budget about the cycling tour and what everyone thought the best bits were. We are now in budget number eight, which was a mammoth edition consisting of 177 pages and including letters from all 10 siblings, as well as from Dorothy, Arthur's wife. I'm still amazed that bulky budget envelopes like this one travelled around England, then to Canada, then to Africa and back to England. Some budgets were lost in the post, but not as many as you would think. Vera is the first person to write a budget letter after the cycling tour. She arrives back in Sydenham after the cycling tour to find the budget waiting, posted by Dorothy. In podcast episode number 12, we previously had Wilfred's, Aldwin's and Dorothy's brief letter, which she described as not really a letter, but just an apology. In this episode, I'm not reading the full letters, but I'm just going to read all the bits about bicycling. Vera's letter, Longton Avenue, Sydenham, September 1907. Avis's illustrations are perfectly beautiful. The sketch of the Isle of Wight bicycle incident is most realistic, and I roared with laughter over it, especially how Aldwin is depicted bicycling away furiously in a funk. I seem to have nothing to say, as most of us were together in the bicycling tour, but I must say how very much I enjoyed it, and thanks to Neville's endless labours, it went off without a hitch. Almost everything was enjoyable, and as I was not expected to look at everything old, I thoroughly enjoyed the architecture part, churches and castles, etc. I was very struck with Salisbury Cathedral, both inside and out, a most perfect work as a whole. I believe the entire cathedral was built in only about 40 years, a most unusual occurrence. Hereford also impressed me very much, though in quite a different way. The outside was disappointing, the enormous solid tower looking very squat, but inside it was most fascinating to my mind, the blending of all the different periods. I find my pen runs away with me directly I start on the tour, so I must restrain myself, as it would be very dull to most of you. 
I think the most beautiful bit of scenery that I have ever seen was the run down from Chepstow to Tinton Abbey, a downhill stretch of road with the glorious ruins of the abbey appearing through the trees. Stradford-on-Avon, where we stopped the last night, is a most delightful old town. As a rule, I hate show places and all the things that must be seen, but this is quite the exception. Certainly your money flies, and really the shops are most tempting. The Americans are not the least part of the amusement. Edmund's letter, Woolly Moor, September 1907. The first sample copies of my cycle tour photos arrived yesterday. I am endeavouring to somewhat atone for my poor conduct in again keeping the budget too long by immediately enclosing them as a peace offering to the budget. My camera unfortunately went wrong and it is now going away to be overhauled. Many of the photographs are not very good. I must ask everyone to please let the photographs all go round to Vera who will then take any of them that she thinks worth it for the family photo album. I propose getting another set printed for Neville's benefit and two or three more copies of the Studland ones. A few notes on the various photos I have enclosed. Cuthbert in a haze about to bathe at Studland. Group of parents and aunts note dad's spotted garments. Family group Neville acting as showman to Bernard's great amusement and Vera's ennui. Photograph of Salisbury very poor. Two photographs of Stonehenge. A rather good photograph of the Saxon church in Bradford-upon-Avon. Bath Abbey. Tinton Abbey, a very poor photograph. Hereford from the bridge. Weird. Anyone may throw this away. The crooked church spire at Clearbury Mortimer. Enville Church. I am specially sorry that my Chepstow one was no use nor my snaps of Ludlow Castle, and various other photographs were also poor. With regard to the cycle tour, I think all that went know how much I enjoyed it. Unfortunately, I never had the opportunity of snapshotting a spill, as I was thoroughly expecting. It was a great wonder that Avis did not manage one on many occasions, in my estimation. The ride in the Wye Valley was the most beautiful I have ever been on, I was always rather amused when, in the evening, different members were striving to write up their diaries and often getting most delightfully mixed up. I only attempted a very bare outline. I am sorry to say that I have had to have recourse to inhaling Schiffman's German asthma cure nearly every evening since returning from the cycling tour. It is most aggravating. Notes on Edmund's letter. Vera did indeed take the majority of the photos and put them in the Cox family photograph album. Sadly, I have no idea if that has survived. I'm not in touch with all the branches of the family, so who knows? But Edmund, in the 1920s, is going through old photos and he finds the Studland Bay ones. He sticks them into the budget and the family reminisce once again about a lovely summer holiday so many of the photos listed above have survived. The group of parents and aunts is a particularly good one. If you are on Twitter, have a look as it is there. Dr Cox has two unmarried sisters, known to the siblings as the Wimbledon aunts, 
one of them who looks identical to Dr Cox. And in the photo, she is wearing a striking spotted dress. And Edmund comments that she looks just like Dr Cox wearing a dress. Avis's letter, Garfield House, October 1907. Enid, I wish you could have been with us cycling. It really was a great success. I think Neville's homecoming of 1907 will always be connected with this project of his, the family cycling tour. Vera, the two things that impressed me most, in the way of sightseeing, etc., on the cycling tour, was Tintin Abbey and Hereford Cathedral, all lighted up at night. Vera's description was very good. I have drawn an incident which happened one evening at Hereford during the bicycle tour. We had found rooms at a quaint little place on a side street above a shop on Sunday. We went out and when we came back later it was all shut up. We rang the doorbell and we knocked on the door and we shouted all standing in the street and no one came. At last after a long time Edmund saw a head sticking out of a window very high up and he bawled out to him can't you come and let us in? The youth didn't think he could, whereupon Ed shouted up, Well, what are you doing there? At any rate, you are in my room. The head promptly disappeared. The passers-by seemed rather amused. After all, it turned out the youth was not in Edmund's room, as though his room was high up, he found there was one room still higher. I believe Burr left just before this incident, though in this sketch I have drawn him doubled up with laughter. Still, never mind. I'm not quite certain of the story, but I had to tell it for the benefit of brothers abroad. The attitudes are drawn partly from memory, but mostly from imagination. From left to right, Burr, Cuff, Avis, Vera, Ed and Nev. Nev has grown rather small in this portrait. I'm not sure why. Notes on Avis's letter. She has sketched an incident from the cycling tour, which made them all laugh. The siblings are locked out of their lodgings on a Sunday evening and are trying to get inside. Edmund, who had a loud and masterful voice, is shouting up at someone who he thinks is in his bedroom. People passing by think it is all very amusing. Avis was good at drawing pen and ink stick figures, while still managing to convey expressions and characteristics. I will put Avis's sketch up on Twitter. Bernard's letter, Sydenham, October 1907. Edmund, your photos are very interesting. I especially like the two groups at Studland and father, mother and the aunts on the beach. Avis, your illustration of the incident at the lodging house in Hereford is simply delightful. I was actually there, though I left directly afterwards. I was fortunate in being able to get in four days of the cycling tour, which was a tremendous success. Neville was invaluable. Generally, he was up an hour before breakfast, cleaning the machines, pumping up tyres, etc. Edmund lent an air of respectability to the party, and his masterful voice was very useful at times. Avis and Vera behaved as perfect little ladies, though they didn't always look it. Cuthbert was angelic as usual. We had very few arguments, and I think I'm right in saying no quarrels. In fact, we were a very harmonious party, 
and ladies always add to the charm of any expedition. Anyhow, ladies, like the lady members of the budget. We sadly missed Enid and Arthur. However, I wonder how we should have managed with a party of eight in getting bedrooms. Six was rather a large number at times to be provided for suddenly. We played a sort of up Jenkins card game on our train journeys, which at times proved rather uproarious. Cuthbert's letter, Berkhamstead, October 1907. I can add nothing new about our bicycle tour. It was an enormous success and must be repeated. Tintin surpassed all expectations. Avis's illustrations are a marvellous feature that must not be allowed to drop from the budget. After leaving the cycling party, I had a splendid week near Oxford with Thomas, an old college friend. During the week, I punctured twice and broke my chain again. Vera's letter, Garfield House, November 1907. Avis, I did like your picture and description of the bicycle tour incident. It was exceedingly entertaining when Edmund roared at the person who he thought was in his room. I do like the way you have drawn everyone doubled over, laughing helplessly. It truly was just like that, for those of you who were not there. Edmund, I have done as you said and taken out some of your Studland and cycling tour photos for the family photograph album. They all interested me very much, though, owing to your camera's indisposition, your photographs were not as good as usual. I think your Stonehenge ones give a very good idea of the place and the group photographs are very characteristic of the family members. Notes on these letters. It is now November 1907 and the siblings have agreed that the bicycling tour was very successful, and they all enjoyed it a great deal. Neville has almost finished his holidays, and will be soon heading home to Africa. He writes fascinating accounts of his travels across Europe by train, and the places he visits. He goes to Pompeii, and he also writes scathingly about Naples. I will return to the budget letters and Neville's travels soon. But whilst we're on the subject of bicycles... I've decided to keep going with this subject. It is November 1907 and we are heading into the Northern Hemisphere winter, so there's no more about bicycles at the moment, presumably too cold, too wet and too much mud. During the winter of 1907 to 1908, the siblings discuss the great question of nightshirts versus pyjamas and the importance of being comfortable in bed. All the male members of the family are listed including husbands and sons, according to their preference, and some of the older men declare that they are considering abandoning nightshirts in favour of pyjamas, evidently a more modern invention. I do find some of the subjects they discuss to be fascinating. No one would have a discussion about nightshirts and pyjamas today. The siblings also produce a special edition of the budget for Christmas 1907 which the Sydenham family members read aloud to each other on Christmas Day after tea. This printed and bound book was then posted around the country and was then sent abroad for the foreign brothers to read as well. It consisted of poems and limericks, photographs and drawings and a variety of entertaining items. 
There were a number of Christmas budgets, edited, typed, printed and bound, mostly by Bernard, until the First World War disrupted things. Not all, but most of them have survived the thousands of miles they travelled in the post. I will get to the Christmas budgets in future episodes. Everyone is delighted with the first Christmas budget of 1907, and the majority of the siblings declare that it is so good that they want to keep it, and they don't want to post it on. Reverend Dr Cox doesn't like carol singers, and angrily chases them away, to general hilarity from his children. Vera is now an international, playing hockey for England, and Edmund and May get married. And during the winter, the siblings read, and review, a huge number of books. We jump now to June 1908, and Vera and Bernard are out bicycling. Vera's letter, Sydenham, June 1908. Yesterday was a glorious day, and Bernard and I went for a 33-mile bicycle ride, which we thoroughly enjoyed. Unfortunately, we met a fair number of people coming back, who would probably be shocked at us riding bicycles on a Sunday. I wanted to hang a little label out. We are going to church this evening. Also, I often want to have a little label printed saying, I don't play hockey in the summer and I can talk on other subjects. Enid's letter, Liverpool, June 1908. We all went to Wolverhampton for Whitsuntide and were favoured with fine weather. This was lucky as there were tennis parties arranged for every day. One morning Cyril and I rode over to Enville by bicycle and we saw Jane. We went by Stewpony and we came back over Highgate Common, 23 miles in all. The place looked as pretty as ever and I heard many accounts of the visit of the bicycling party last summer. Bernard's letter, Sydenham, June 1908. I think the chief event that has happened to me since I wrote last is the short holiday Vera and I spent at Hazelmere at Whitsuntide, in which we did some grand bicycling. Spring cleaning was going on at home and the parents were away, so Vera and I took lodgings at Hazelmere for three days. We took the train to Epsom from Sydenham at about nine o'clock on the Friday morning. It happened to be the tail end of the Epsom race meeting so we found Epsom very crowded. We cycled from there to Hazelmere, about 31 miles, stopping for lunch at Guildford. We arrived at Hazelmere about 3.30, very hot, as the last part of the road is all uphill. Our rooms were very nice. Vera was rather alarmed at the small servant girl presenting her with a slate at supper, on which meal orders for the next two days were to be written down using chalk. Fortunately, Vera had previously had half an hour's conversation with Lizzie, our domestic, before we left home, so Vera had everything at her finger ends, or perhaps on the tip of her tongue would be a more appropriate phrase. On Saturday, we rode to Chichester, 22 miles, and inspected the cathedral. It was interesting, but we didn't like it so much as those we saw last summer, Salisbury and Hereford. We then went on to Bosham, a very quaint and rather pretty village, on a very spread out river, rather like the Norfolk Broads. I had been there three or four years ago yachting. Then we went on to Havant, which was an awful place, where we took the train back to Hazelmere. On Whit Sunday, we rode to Frensham Ponds, 
a lovely spot. On the way there, we had been up to Hindhead and the Devil's Punch Bowl. The view is glorious, and the country all round is splendid. We might have hung labels out. We have been to church early this morning, but we refrained. On Whit Monday, we left at 9am and rode all the way home, 47 miles, arriving at 3.30. We came back a different way, through Shear and Dorking. At Shear, we stopped for a quarter of an hour to view the church, but we found a service had just commenced. So we contented ourselves with reading Father's account of the church, which was hanging, framed in the porch. Here we had our first shower of rain, luckily only lasting about 10 minutes. At Dorking, we rode into a huge crowd. There was a band contest on, and at intervals of about five minutes, a band would march down the middle of the high street. The road was almost impassable. Here we had our second shower, so we took shelter under the archway, leading to Rose Hill. Uncle Edward has recently let his house, else we should have gone to see him and cousin Adela. We lunched at Rygate. We also raced a sailor for some miles. He was very disgusted whenever Vera put on a spurt and passed him, and we kept close together, first one leading and then the other, until we reached Croydon, where he suddenly vanished. It was a very nice little outing, and we were very fortunate in having such good weather all the time. Notes on these letters. If you don't know what I'm talking about, Whit Sunday is the seventh Sunday after Easter. It is generally in May or June. It is spelt W-H-I-T. I think I'm correct in remembering when I was small that the half-term holiday in the summer term in England was known as the Whitsun holidays. Another example of how the UK year used to be based on the church year much more than it is today. Whitsuntide, Whitsunday and Whitmonday are terms that are not used a great deal today by many people. Dr Cox wrote a lot of books about churches and about travel. I'm not sure which book Bernard and Vera are talking about, but the village of Shear, near Guildford, were evidently pleased with what Dr Cox wrote about their church, as they framed it and hung it in the church porch. 47 miles is 75 kilometres, a good cycle ride on old heavy bicycles. If you're interested, look up their route. Hazelmere, Shear, Dorking, Rygate, Croydon, and then back to Sydenham in South London. A lot of those roads are probably far too busy to safely cycle on today. But my favourite bit is the sailor, who was annoyed that Vera could cycle faster than he could. Most of Vera's brothers just accepted that she was fitter than they were, but that sailor was actually disgusted. Some people still considered it unseemly for ladies to ride bicycles. Avis's letter, Sea View, Branscombe, South Devon, August 1908. Arthur, Dorothy, Christopher and I left Devonport on July 31st and arrived at Seaton Station by a later train than the Sydenham lot. We had to change trains twice, but had a very comfortable journey, keeping the carriage to ourselves the whole way. Christopher was invaluable. Whenever anyone looked like they were going to get into our carriage, 
we put Christopher at the window and told him to suck his tie. As you can imagine, this answered very well. It was rather amusing, at least to me, the way I tried to buoy up Arthur's hopes as we bicycled from Seaton to Branscombe. I had really forgotten how bad the roads were after our exploratory visit here at Easter. I consoled him on the long pull up out of Seaton by telling him there would be a good level stretch on the top and then a nice run down into Branscombe. We were able to ride at the top but had only ridden a few yards down the Branscombe hill when we both decided to get off and walk and we had to walk the rest of the way and it was really more trying than the walk up out of Seaton. The hill is very steep and stony and the roads here are very poor. Our landlady, however, told me the other day that she always rides down it and seemed to think nothing of it. I felt rather humbled by this, as I generally like to think that any hill I don't ride down is really not rideable. It is really rather dreadful thinking of getting out of Branscombe in any direction with our bicycles, as it is right down in a hole. I don't expect we shall use our bicycles much, but I am glad we have all brought them as I hope we shall be able to bicycle and meet up with Enid's party. Enid's letter, Wood Farm, Charmouth, August 1908. We are all very pleased with Charmouth. It is a dear little place and quite out of the way of trippers. Of course, there are a good many visitors here, but they are all put up in cottages or farms and there is not a single house that is obviously a lodging house. The whole country round about is very hilly and if you are cycling it is hard to do an average of six miles an hour. You so frequently come to a hill that is two miles long which you have to toil up pushing your machine. But I oughtn't to say this for I am afraid I never push mine. We had a very successful picnic on Thursday when we met four of the Sydenham party who had bicycled to Musbury to meet us which is a village halfway between Branscombe and Charmouth. We were only very sorry that Cuthbert was not of the party. Bernard's letter, Branscombe, August 1908. I have seen such a lot of a lot of you lately that it hardly seems worthwhile writing a letter. As most of you know, a choice selection of the family has been holiday making in Devonshire and Dorsetshire. Father, mother, the little girls, Cuthbert and I at Sea View in Branscombe, Arthur and family at Gaze Farm in Branscombe, and Enid and family at Wood Farm in Charmouth, 15 miles from Branscombe by cycling roads. The hills round Branscombe are tremendous, and the roads are so abominably loose that our tyres suffer considerably. We always expect punctures. I rode over to Budley Salterton, to see Mr Archer, who retired from Hunt, Cox and Co about two years ago, and I had a puncture going and another whilst returning. Cuthbert has had innumerable punctures. Cuthbert and I stopped one night at Charmouth with Enid and family. He broke his chain on the way, and I punctured coming back. Arthur's letter. Gaze Farm, Branscombe, August 1908. More or less of a gloom is upon us, as Cuthbert has left us today. He had an appalling journey before him to Barmouth, where he is due to arrive about seven o'clock tomorrow morning. He did not make a very good start, 
as just outside the village, he punctured once more. He had already accomplished the astonishing record of 12 punctures in just five bicycle rides, and so he had to run all the way to Seaton to catch his train. But I hear he did a very fine performance, he and his bicycle arriving in a dead heat at the station before Avis, who was driving in a trap with the luggage. Although I had brought my bicycle, I have not tempted Providence and have not been cycling. Vera's letter, Sydenham, September 1908. There is absolutely nothing to say about our holiday, as everyone has described Branscombe quite perfectly. I may add that the descriptions about our bicycle rides were quite accurate. The roads were too awful for words, and poor Cuthbert punctured with quite astonishing frequency. P.S. It is now two years since the budget was first started. I believe Cyril prophesies that it would only last one year. Enid's letter, Liverpool, September 1908. I have been thoroughly enjoying all the Branscombe stories. I believe we all had a grand holiday. We were all very sorry to leave Charmouth. Hazel's chief grief was parting from the baby pigs, and Owen very much enjoyed milking the cows. He had become quite an expert milker, and he used to milk six cows twice daily. After leaving Charmouth, we went to Clevedon, and we had one very good bicycle ride over the Mendips and down through Cheddar Gorge. The cliffs there are wonderful, over 500 feet high. The village of Cheddar itself is dreadfully overrun with trippers, although we greatly enjoyed our bicycling. Bernard's letter, Sydenham, October 1908. We are anxiously awaiting the arrival of Aldwyn. His ship is due at Marseille today, and if all goes well, he should arrive tomorrow. Alas, tomorrow is my last day for writing the budget, so I shall not have the felicity of describing to you our brother Aldwyn's tropical complexion and Central African manners. Nothing very exciting has happened to me since I last wrote. I stopped a weekend at Chelmsford with the Landons, and I rode to Colchester and back on the Saturday, 48 miles, not a single hill all the way worth getting off for. I rode one Saturday to Westerham with Avis, 35 miles, had one puncture, which was quite a change after Branscombe, and the absurd number of punctures we all suffered there. Neville's letter, Pretoria, South Africa, October 1908. Edmund's day of pleasure was like mine last week, I think. At 1.45pm, we started off in a motor car to the Premier Mine, having first attached our bikes behind, as we intended leaving the car at the mine and biking back. All went well for just six miles, then a breakdown halfway up a hill, a lot of fiddling about, and finally, after 20 minutes delay, we backed the car down the hill and started her at it again, poor me running alongside. No good. More fiddling, and then we paid two men to shove from behind, and with their assistance we reached the top of the hill. I got in then, and we ran down the far side in great style, but of course it stuck again on the next hill, only luckily opposite a wayside shop, so we pretended we had stopped on our own account, and went in and had a drink of warm ginger beer. 
After a 15-minute rest and a cooling of the engine, we resumed, and two miles from the Premier Mine, a rod broke underneath somewhere. This we tied up, but we had to get seven men to shove us up the last hill into the mine, and it was a most ignominious entry. We arrived at 4.45 and had only gone 12 miles. We had to start back at 5.30, as it gets dark by 6.30 and we had no lamps. My companion punctured at the end of three miles. I mended that and then his free wheel gave way, but after a lot of banging about and rough treatment, I managed to make it catch again. Then another puncture, and by the time that was mended, it was dark. We rode on and had covered about six miles when his handles came out and he rode right into a sharp rock and punctured again. This time we had to walk two miles to the nearest house to get a light to repair the puncture by, and then the road was so bad we had to walk another mile, but we rode the last two miles and arrived at 8.45pm, a really restful day. I was fairly knocked out the next day. Bernard's Letter, Sydenham, November 1908 Neville, your bicycle adventures sound appalling. Your machines out there don't seem to be of the first class, and it sounds like your roads are not very good either. Notes on these letters. The Premier Mine, where Neville and his friend left their car before going cycling, is east of Pretoria. In 1905, the Cullinan Diamond was found there, the largest rough diamond of gem quality ever found, enormously valuable. The diamond was named after Sir Cullinan, the owner of the mine, and the Premier Mine was renamed the Cullinan Diamond Mine in 2003. In 1905, the Boer War had recently ended and the Cullinan Diamond was given to King Edward VII by the Transvaal people as a token of their loyalty. Many smaller diamonds were made from this huge stone. Two of the large Cullinan stones were made into a brooch, which the Queen regularly wears. Apparently they are known as Granny's Chips. Branscombe and Charmouth are on the south coast, on either side of the border between Devon and Dorset. Interestingly, I never knew that Devon was once known as Devonshire and that Dorset was once called Dorsetshire. In 1908, the extended family spent the whole of August on holiday there, just like they had spent a month at Studland the year before. It is now the Northern Hemisphere winter, so the siblings have stopped cycling, but it will soon be summer again. Mrs Cox, mother, died in June 1909 after an abdominal operation. And in August 1909, four of the siblings are on holiday in Thursley in Surrey with Dr Cox. He has picked the location this time, as he is busy researching and writing his next book, Rambles in Surrey. Avis's letter, Red Lion Inn, Thursley, Surrey, August 1909. I am sitting in an ideal place for writing a letter. The Red Lion Inn stands right on the London to Portsmouth Road that leads over Hindhead, about three miles south of here. 
Cuthbert, Vera and I have just crossed over the road from the inn to the common on the other side. We are sitting about 20 yards from the road on a grassy bank, surrounded by bracken in the shade of some oak trees. There is a cornfield in front of us, with a pathway through it to Thursley Church and the village. Father is in the sitting room, writing a book, which is to be called Rambles in Surrey. He is also writing a new guide for Surrey in the Little Guide series, as the present one is so bad. He is also writing some articles on churches for the Athenaeum. The inn is a very nice one and quite clean. Poor Cuthbert's bedroom faces onto the road, so he will get a good deal of dust from the many motors. The motor scout told our landlady that about 400 motors pass the inn every day. The noise is rather trying at times, and Father simply rages about them. He says they disturb his rambling and are quite intolerable. We entrained here from Waterloo to Milford Station. Vera and I bicycled slowly from Milford to the Red Lion, while Father and Cuthbert walked, whilst Cuthbert was wheeling his bicycle. They took a very long time to walk, and Vera and I felt half-starved when we at last had lunch at 2.30. Bernard came for the weekend and he brought his bicycle. We rode to Milford to meet him and then we all bicycled on to Chiddingford, which is a quaint little Surrey village. I like the village green and the pond very much. We left our bicycles at the Crown Inn, a nice picturesque old place, and went and lay down in a field until tea time when we joined father at the inn. Father had walked over to Chiddingford from Thursley. Burr has now left us to return to the office, but we hope he will be down here again next weekend. Bernard's letter, Sydenham, September 1909. Avis, your account of Thursley was very good. I thought it was a delightful place, apart from the motors. I have no hesitation in saying that the majority of motor drivers habitually and deliberately drive recklessly and selfishly. As someone who enjoys bicycling, it causes me some consternation with regards to my safety. Cuthbert's letter, Berkhamsted, September 1909. We had a splendid fortnight at Thursley, which I enjoyed immensely. We went on some good walks and had some grand cycle rides. Whilst we were there, Carr and Hester paid us a visit. Carr is most amusing, and both of them seem to be very unconventional and easygoing. Carr was talking about going over to Paris alone for a week, or getting a boy she knew there to look after her while she was there. One story she told us rather illustrates her coolness. She and another girl were out bicycling at Cambridge, and this girl kept accidentally dropping her hat. At last, Carr got very annoyed at having to keep stopping to pick up the hat. Seeing a handsome cab waiting in the road, Carr suggested that the girl should get the cabbie to take the hat back to Cambridge for her. The other girl was reluctant, thinking it would look rather odd for her to be cycling hatless. So Carr took her own hat off too and gave them both to the driver and told him to take them both back to Girton College, quite disregarding the fact that the handsome cab belonged to two undergraduates. Carr did not relate what the opinion was of the two young undergraduates in the handsome cab. Notes on these letters. 
The Red Lion Inn in Thursley in Surrey is no longer a pub, but the building is still there. The busy main road now goes past on a bypass. The inn is well known for an unusual murder in the 1700s, when an unknown sailor was murdered by three other sailors, who were later caught and then hung. It is in a beautiful area with many lovely walks, including Hindhead and the Devil's Punch Bowl, which both have spectacular views. Carr and Hester are cousins of the siblings. Carr Laird Cox was a feminist, a suffragette, a member of the Bloomsbury set and muse and lover of the World War I poet Rupert Brooke. The siblings often seem a bit perplexed about Carr. They comment about the peculiar clothes she wore and she was evidently quite a character. She clearly wasn't bothered that ladies were expected to wear a hat or a bonnet when out cycling. Avis's letter, Portal, Tarpoli, Cheshire, October 1909. Last evening, I had to go and sit in the little parlour with Mrs Brooks and Dorothy, as they asked me to grace them with my presence. It is a cosy room and very pleasant, but I would rather have been in the schoolroom where I could write. The little parlour is a lovely room, although it is not little at all. An open hearth, comfy chairs and splendid oak beams across the ceiling. Billy is going to London for a few days to the dentist, so I shall have some time to myself here. I wish I had my bicycle here now, as I think we shall be here for the whole term. Next term we shall go to the house at Sunnyside, which is in Rawtonstall in Lancashire. However, I can always borrow Dorothy's bicycle. Perhaps I shall cycle to Beeston Castle. The country round here is quite delightful. Notes on Avis's letter. Avis is now a governess for Mr and Mrs Brooks, an extremely wealthy family who own the large house of Portal in Tarpawley in Cheshire. Avis is governess to a small girl called Marjorie, who was known to the family as Billy, and she also acts as chaperone to Dorothy, the older daughter. We now jump to the summer of 1910 for some more cycling expeditions. Avis's letter, St Patrick's Rectory, Newey, County Down, August 1910. Cecil is the organist today. I thought he sounded very good, but it is a poor organ and a mixed choir with no boys at all. St Patrick's is very plain, but very orderly and clean, of course. The Protestant churches are very different to our churches in England. They are always kept locked, as there are only services on Sundays. Newey itself is not an interesting town, but its situation is awfully nice. There are hills all round and lots of expeditions I want to make, but I think we shall not get time for half of them. When we went up Sleeve Gullion, we bicycled past a very pretty lock and then started to climb up. I saw inside three Irish cottages on that day. The first one was at the bottom of Sleeve Gullion. We stopped there to ask for a drink of water and two bowls of milk and some water were brought to us and then we were told to go and visit a holy well a little higher up. Give them a clean mug to take up, the woman called out to a girl, and then we went off with the mug. I did like that well. On the bank above it, in little alcoves and niches, were all sorts of offerings left there, scraps of china, pictures, 
a china crucifix, a book, etc. It really looked as if children might have arranged them for a game. On a tree nearby were all sorts of rags tied to the twigs, which looked most curious. Then the rain came down heavily, and we asked if we could shelter in a cottage nearby. A dog flew out most ferociously, but was called back by a woman who was very unkempt, with bare feet. She was most hospitable and kind. She gave me the only chair there seemed to be, and she sat down on a cradle with her little boy. Cecil was offered a little stool. I could hardly see as we went in, as there was a lot of smoke from the peat fire in the open grate. There was only one room, with a big bed which was screened off at one end. Chickens were wandering about inside, as well as a cat and a dog. When we came down the mountain, we went into the cottage of the woman who had kindly looked after our bicycles for us. This was a bigger and cleaner cottage, and looked quite cheerful, with a good fire in the hearth. The old woman was most talkative, and was sitting warming herself by the fire. She asked me to come and do the same. Of course, her feet were bare, and she was toasting them at the hearth. I longed to do the same, as my feet were rather cold from getting soaked in the rain. We hadn't time to stop long there. She was quite surprised when Cecil gave her some money for looking after our bicycles, and she said it was nothing, and then she was very pleased, and followed us to the door exclaiming, Oh, you are a gentleman, and such a lady too, and then she wished us safely home. There are heaps of these little whitewashed cottages dotted all over the country just here, each with their own little bit of land. The view from the top of Sleeve Gullion was well worth the wetting we got on the way up. It came out quite fine when we got to the top, and it was most glorious. We could see all the way to the sea. Notes on this letter. Avis is on holiday from her governess position at Tarpoli, and she is now engaged to Cecil Moore. He used to be a schoolmaster at Garfield House with Arthur. Cecil Moore was the teacher who Vera and Avis persuaded to run up and down the stairs to raise the ghost. Bernard's letter. Alum Bay House, Isle of Wight, August 1910. The view from the sitting room window is the best of all the places I have been to in the summer holidays. On a clear day, we can see the white cliffs at Studland quite distinctly, which was where we were three years ago. The hill on our right hand, looking towards the sea, is covered with heather. The downs on the left terminate at the needles, but are spoilt by being overrun with golfers, who stream past the front of this house all day long. We spend a great deal of time fishing from the pier, but without much success, although members of our party have hauled up a conger eel and a lobster. These, however, are red-letter days, our usual catch being a few whiting. Arthur and Cuthbert are out blackberrying, Vera and Miss Hatton have gone to bathe, and Father is upstairs wrestling with the last few pages of his next book, Norfolk Churches. The other end of this house is occupied by another family, who cause us both amusement and annoyance. Their name is Wykes. The eldest of the three Miss Wykes, in particular, finds ingenious excuses for making advances, mostly towards poor Cuthbert. Arthur is thinking of putting up a sign in the hall announcing that he is already married. 
I let my hair grow long and I don't shave, which rather repels the daughters, I believe. Cuthbert has been extremely unfortunate with the bicycle that he hired here. It was a new bicycle. On the first day, he cut the back tyre nearly in half and had several punctures, which were attributed to broken glass. Fortunately, it was nearly at the end of a cycle ride. Morgan is with us as well. He is another Berkhamsted schoolmaster. On Sunday, when he left us, Arthur, Cuthbert and I accompanied him on the steamer to Lymington. On the way down to Totland, Cuthbert punctured. By dint of hard running, he caught the steamer and we spent the entire steamer trip mending two punctures. But the tyre was still flat, so we had it off again in Lymington and mended a third puncture. We then rode to Royden House and had tea with the hookers. They didn't remember us at first, as it is seven years since we were last there. Morgan had to rush to catch his train at Brockenhurst, while we returned to Lymington to catch the five o'clock steamer back to the island. The whole party of us, except Father, also crossed to Lymington last Friday, and thence cycled about five miles to a place between Milford-on-Sea and Downton, where our leak cousins, Emily, Willie and Jack, had arrived in a caravan from Sydenham. It was a beautiful spot, sheltered from the wind, with a stream at the bottom of the field. We had an excellent lunch of eggs and bacon, and stewed blackberries and apples, which they cooked for us on a fire. The boys had a tent, and Emily slept in the van. The horse had been borrowed from Goodall, the grocer at Sydenham, and seemed decidedly puzzled by his new mode of life. We thoroughly enjoyed the afternoon. However, it must have decided drawbacks. What they do in this recent wet and windy weather, I don't know. Also, Cuthbert, on his way to the other end of the island, to visit friends at Carisbrook, encountered a hen, which had evidently been lying in wait for him. It rushed out of the hedge and threw him off his machine. He cut his hands and he tore the knees of his trousers and the hen cackled with joy. Yesterday, when we were starting on a cycle ride to Ventnor, Cuthbert found that his front tyre was flat. He mended three more punctures and then succeeded in riding two and a half miles to Freshwater, where he left the bicycle at the shop and took another in place of it. The rest of us have only had about one puncture apiece. Cuthbert's letter. The Manor House, Great Milton, Oxford, September 1910. Bernard has told you all what a great time we had at Allen Bay. I certainly think it is the most prettily situated house we have been to, and the bathing was very good. The perils of bicycling have been well described by Bernard. I always thought my record of punctures at Branscombe would never be broken, but Allen Bay easily holds the record now. I'm going to finish this episode with a poem. Many of the siblings were either witty and clever letter writers, or they were good at poetry, or both. This was a poem written by Bernard about their 1910 summer holiday at Allen Bay on the Isle of Wight. Allen Bay House is probably 
the house just south of the golf house bed and breakfast, just 800 metres from the Needles car park, which is probably where the siblings spent so much time fishing. You can see it all on maps online. This poem was published in the Christmas budget of 1910. I say published, it was in a printed and bound book, but probably less than 20 people have ever read or heard this poem before today. I don't think anything from the budget or any of the poetry of the Cox siblings has ever been published. It's called Alum Bay and the first four verses are about Cuthbert, Arthur, Father and then Vera. Alum Bay. Cuthbert. In front of the veranda, looking westward to the sea, there's a beauteous girl a-sitting and I know she thinks of me. For her lips are gently moving. Here are tennis balls, they say. Come you back, you tall six-footer. Come you back to Allen Bay. Come you back to Allen Bay, where you puncture every day. Can't you hear your tyres bursting all around at Allen Bay? On the roads near Allen Bay, where the flints in thousands lay, and the guns resound like thunder from the forts across the bay. Arthur. Is trousers they were yeller, what was left of them, I mean. Is amusements were the strangest that ever I have seen. For I seed him once tobogganing on nothing but his suit, and a painting brilliant colours on his brother's modest foot. Sailing wildly mid the squalls, on the downs with our tent walls, and searching in the bushes for the golfer's long-lost balls. Oh, the downs at Allen Bay, where the golfing people play, and their swear words sound like thunder. Close your ears to what they say. Father, put me somewhere in my bedroom when the weather's at its worst, where a perky, chattering housemaid brings me tea to quench my thirst. For the pen and ink are calling, and it's there that I would be, by the window, in my bedroom, looking sometimes at the sea. There were times at Allen Bay when I wished I was away, when the guns were fired daily from the forts across the bay. Oh, the noise of the affray, and the wind at Allen Bay, when the doors were banged like thunder the blessed lifelong day. Vera. When the lamp was on the table, we would sit down, men and maids. We'd start on poker patience, and she'd sing out, King of Spades! With a full house on the table, and a flush upon her cheek. She used to score like lightning, through the misty lamplit reek. In the misty lamplit reek, we would play from week to week. And the silence hung that heavy, you were half afraid to speak. In the house at Allen Bay just to pass the time away. If we hadn't got the patience, we would jigsaw all the day. But that's all shoved behind us, long ago and far away, and there ain't no buses running from the bank to Allen Bay, though there ain't no blooming heather on the slopes of Sydenham Hill. We've the same old sort of weather to make us ponder still. On the shore at Allen Bay, with our bathing tents asway, where we fished beneath the pierhead and our bait it wouldn't stay, on our hooks at Allen Bay, where the little fishes play, oh, the lobster hooked by Morgan, one memorable day. 
explanations on the poem. A young lady staying at the next door house was obsessed with Cuthbert and kept finding excuses to talk to him. It is never explicitly mentioned in the budget letters, but it's very likely that Cuthbert was gay. Everyone was clearly amused at women paying attention to Cuthbert, who was tall and handsome. Arthur generally went on holiday with old trousers, with the seat falling out of them. Their bathing tent collapsed in the wind, so they attempted to fly it like a kite, and people on the golf course watched in astonishment. Father was trying to write a book in his bedroom. The servants kept bothering him. People kept banging doors and the wind howled all the time and the forts across the bay kept firing their guns. Dr Cox could be a cantankerous old grump when he was trying to concentrate. Vera was very good at cards. It rained a lot. They played a lot of cards and they did a lot of jigsaws. And Morgan was a friend of Cuthbert's another Berkhamstead schoolmaster, and one day he caught a lobster. Bernard wrote this poem in his stockbroker's office, near the bank, in the City of London, in the winter of 1910, and the weather was still bad. In the next episode, of 100 Years of Cox, I will return to the budget letters and read some more of the siblings' exploits. I'm quite late getting this episode finished, so I haven't actually worked out what will be in the next podcast episode yet. But I expect someone's handwriting will be criticised, and someone else will do something terrible or shocking or noteworthy, and the other siblings will then discuss it at great length. Neville is returning to Africa, Arthur is starting the new term at Garfield House School in Plymouth. Cuthbert is also back to school for the new term at Berkhamstead. A Hundred Years of Cox, the Machel Cox budget letters and all content is subject to copyright and belongs to both myself and the Bodleian Library in Oxford. Machel Cox Letters is on Twitter, where I share photos and sketches from the budget. If you have any questions on anything in this episode, or any other episode, you can send me an email, machelcoxletters at gmail.com. You have been listening to 100 Years of Cox. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 